Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent radio show. We're now in the month of August, which means the U.S. Open is coming ever closer. Before we get to the U.S. Open, we have the Canada and Cincinnati Tour stops Canada next week. The men will be in Toronto and the women will be in Montreal. And last year, my co-host and partner in crime, Saqib Ali, went to Montreal to cover the men. Uh, the women will be in Montreal this year, of course. Saqib, if people want to take a quick little summer tennis vacation and want to make the journey from Lowell or other places in New England or the northeastern United States and go over to Quebec, uh, what can they expect in Montreal? Tell us some of your experiences in the city and at the tournament, the sights and sounds, uh, either in Montreal in general or, or at the uh, tennis complex where the Montreal tournament takes place. Uh, hey Matt, yeah, so definitely, uh, like you mentioned, I want to touch upon something else uh, for uh, fans who just tune in uh, uh, to majors and uh, some of the bigger events. Uh, this was known as the Canadian Open, and uh, it's always, uh, like Matt said, in, uh, uh, swapping places uh, for both tours. Uh, each year, the men, uh, the, I think uh, the odd year, the men are in uh, Montreal, and even here, they are in uh, Toronto, like this one, and, uh, and it works inversely with the women. So the, the women are in Montreal, and I was there last year. Uh, all I can say is a very fan-friendly tournament. It's a mini U.S. Open if you've gone, uh, because there are a lot of courts, a lot of practice courts, big facility. Actually, the stadium court is pretty big, and it's, it's one of the fan-friendly events. And if you are in New England, uh, outside of U.S. Open, uh, Montreal serves you. Uh, it's a dual destination. It's the closest thing actually going to uh, you know, some, something like Europe or, or more specifically like France without actually taking a flight. You can drive like four and a half, five, five hours depending on where in New England you are. And, uh, yeah, the tennis is world class. Uh, this is a marquee, uh, stop on both tours where the hardcore action really heats up uh, in prep for the U.S. Open. And this year, uh, the event is going to serve, uh, some world class names. Uh, Serena Williams is back in contention. And uh, we, we, we're not sure if uh, there, there's going to be some absentees. Uh, I know Magaruta pulled out of uh, uh, San Jose. And Matt uh, Wozniacki was a no-show in Washington. So on that note, Matt, uh, what do you expect for this uh, tournament? By the time the show is released, uh, the qualifying draw would be in full flight in Montreal. Well, the main thing to keep in mind for tennis fans following women's tennis, not just this next month and this next tournament in Montreal, but really at any time of year, is to expect the unexpected. Uh, we are in a, a different era. We're in a different space with women's tennis right now. We're no, we're no longer in the place where Serena Williams was expected to make, you know, the semifinals of all four major tournaments and the finals of at least three and win a couple major titles a year. We're, we're past that, and that's not necessarily because Serena can't play at a high level. She obviously can, but motherhood and a lot of other disruptions, some concerns about health, uh, the durability of her shoulder, which emerged at Roland Garros and forced her to uh, withdraw from the tournament in, in midstream. It's, it's, she's just in a different place right now, and accordingly, women's tennis is. Now, women's tennis as a whole is in a great spot. A lot of different players are winning first major titles. You have Angelique Kerber coming back from her horrible 2017 to win a third major title. 
There are a lot of special players who are doing special things. The quality of tennis from one tournament to another is generally very good, if not excellent. So the WTA is producing great tennis, but in terms of predicting who's going to win at various tour stops, either the majors or also next week in Montreal, it's a fool's errand to think that you have the inside track in terms of knowing who's going to win and lose. It is just so unpredictable. So many players are experiencing massive fluctuations of results. Just a few examples here. Yelena Ostapenko lost in the first round of Roland Garros, made the semifinals of Wimbledon. Sloane Stevens made the finals of Roland Garros, lost in the first round of Wimbledon. And uh, Garbina Muguruza made the semifinals at Roland Garros, lost in the second round of Wimbledon. And those are just a few examples. A, a lot of other players are going through similarly wild swings in their results from one major tournament to the next, also from one regular tour stop to the next. So putting your finger on the pulse of the WTA Tour, you'll get a very irregular heartbeat. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in general. I mean, an irregular heartbeat is bad for a patient at a hospital. But for women's tennis, it's not because there's always someone good and there's always quality tennis to be found. But in terms of predicting wins and losses, uh, one really shouldn't try to go down that road. One should just try to enjoy the very wild ride that the WTA has in store for us. I think that if you were to focus a little bit more on Montreal and what's important, I have two basic storylines, Sakib. One is if there is a single player who needs a good week in Canada, it's Alina Svitolina. She was not 100% at the Australian Open, so she lost in the quarterfinals. She won Rome. She defended her Rome title this year after having won it the previous year as well. She was, for many, the favorite to win Roland Garros, either she or Simona Hallett. They were like the two players expected to meet in the final, but Svitolina did not get out of the first week. She lost to Mihaila Buzarnescu of Romania in the third round. She's never done well on grass, so she was not expected to do well at Wimbledon. When she lost in the first week, it was not that big of a surprise, and it really wasn't that much of a disappointment either. But now she's coming into the summer hardcourt season. Hardcourts are her best surface, and she won Toronto last year, so she has a lot of points to defend. I'm not saying that she needs to win uh, Montreal and, and defend her Canadian Open Rogers Cup championship, but she does need a deep run, at least a quarterfinal, realistically a semifinal, so that she can leave Canada and head for Cincinnati saying, you know what, my game is there. You know, I know I can make a deep run at the U.S. Open. I don't have to, I don't have to post a big result in Cincinnati. If Svitolina has a solid week, semis are better, ideally. In Montreal, she could feel good about her prospects for the U.S. Open, a tournament where she is probably going to face more pressure than nearly everyone else there, uh, Karolina Pliskova being the possible exception. So that's one big storyline. Svitolina really needs a good week in Canada next week. The other main storyline is that if you look at the players ranked 21st through 26th on the WTA Tour, 
listeners might recall a few weeks ago when we talked about Wimbledon seedings and how at the majors, such as the U.S. Open, the top eight seeds play the bottom eight seeds of 32. So one through eight play 25 through 32 uh, in the third round. So if you are right around that 24 versus 25 cut line, you know, you want to be at 24 or higher because if you're 25 through 32, you have to play a top eight seed in the third round. So let's look, looking at the rankings, Serena Williams is 26th and Maria Sharapova is 22nd. Uh, Buzarnescu, who beats Fidelina at the French Open, she's right on the cut line at 24. So those players, Serena, Sharapova, Buzarnescu, also Dominika Sibilkova, who made the Wimbledon quarterfinals a month ago, she's 25th. Those players right around that 24-25 cut line, they need a few wins in Canada to get to 24th or better and make sure that their U.S. Open draw is more favorable than it otherwise would be. Uh, an early loss in Canada for those players I've mentioned, Serena Sharapova, Sibilkova, Buzarnescu, you know, that's going to hurt their U.S. Open seed, and it's very likely going to hurt their U.S. Open draw. So beyond Svitolina, those are the players who really need a productive week in Canada to improve their hopes. No, I was just going to add uh, to that. I think you captured, you know, some of the uh, interesting, uh, you know, storylines that we have to follow during uh, this set leading up to the U.S. Open. I also wanted to point out, like, uh, world number one, Simona Halep, has taken a wild card into the New Haven event, uh, the Connecticut Open, that's just a week before the U.S. Open. And uh, she, along with Petra Kovareva, are one of the two, I believe, top ten players who, if they honor the schedule, would end up playing three weeks in a row, which, again, we've discussed many times, the tennis with an accent and even on the Twitter handle, is not a good recipe, especially if you want to peak for the Open. Uh, you don't want to be playing too much tennis. Uh, so not sure if, uh, you know, uh, they will still be there if they both have, like, good week, uh, good weeks in uh, Montreal and Cincinnati. But uh, to me, the scheduling uh, did not make sense. But, again, uh, players sometimes know their bodies better and they probably think they would be better served playing a few matches in uh, New Haven than just practice uh, in New York, which is like a 60-mile you know, uh, car commute from uh, New Haven. So on that note, I want to, Matt, uh, bring to our audiences uh, and listeners uh, notice something that you have written about recently for Tennis with an Accent. Uh, for a casual tennis fan who doesn't really pay attention, they think uh, WTA, which is a women's store, and ATP, the men's store, are the two equal uh, sides of the same coin, but it doesn't really work that way especially at the co-events, the majors and some of the uh, Masters 1000 events and also the you know uh, mandatory premier events for the WTA. And what I'm referring here is uh, there's uh, clearly a, a bias in, in scheduling, uh, not only at Wimbledon but a lot of other events. Uh, currently, the event in Washington, women are relegated to outside courts. And, Matt, you can speak uh, more to, to that uh, overall picture, how it doesn't serve the, uh, as you say, the health of the sport really well because uh, some of the big names of women's tennis could be on an outside court, which is good for the fans who didn't have tennis court tickets. But the men, especially the big names, seldom, you know, get relegated. Uh, like at Wimbledon, Federer and Murray uh, don't really go outside of tennis court, which is fine uh, for many, but uh, just talk us through the imbalance there. Yeah, so I wrote 
a story at Tennis with an Accent at our website, which uh, went into greater detail about this. But here's here's the basic summation or or uh, rehash of that article. Washington is a dual gender tournament. Women and men both play at the same facility during the same week on the calendar. Um, there's a there are some tournaments which have a full week dedicated solely to the women and then another week at the same facility solely dedicated to the men. One example is the Gestad Switzerland, the Swiss Open Tournament. The women play one week right after Wimbledon and then the men play the next week. But that's not a dual gender tournament properly understood. Those are two separate one-week tournaments when the women and men are not sharing the same facility, the same order of play. Washington, though, is one week with both tours sharing the facility. So that is what we specifically mean when we refer to as a dual gender event. Now, there is a specific difference between the men's Washington tournament and the women. The, the men's tournament is an ATP 500 event, 500 points to the champion. The women's event is an international level event, and that is a, that is a decidedly lower tier the winner of the WTA Washington event for the women uh, gets only 280 points. The the proper comparison or the proper point of parity, of, of equality, would be if the women's tournament had been a premier level. Uh, the premier level tournaments, uh, and this is not premier five, by the way, or premier mandatory. Those are worth 900 for the champion. A simply uh, a premier level tournament is worth 470, so very close to the ATP 500. But an international is worth only 280. So people will say, and they won't be wrong, they will be correct about this, that the Washington men's tournament is noticeably more prestigious and valuable than the women's tournament. So I totally under, understand that. However, if you're going to bother to have a dual gender tournament during the same week, uh, Fans, but also television viewers, need to get the idea that this really is a shared experience. You know, first off, let's look at it from the fans' point of view. The past few days, there have been four to five matches on the two main stadium courts in Washington, and in those five match orders of play, the men have had four of the five matches on multiple occasions. So the women, under that setup, they, they are basically being relegated to a sideshow, a very occasional interruption of a men's tournament. At least that is the show court scheduling. So I know that the Washington men's tournament is more important, but when television is showing six, seven straight hours of men's tennis, who, watching at home, is going to get the idea that this is a shared dual gender tournament. At the very least, Sakib, here, here's the, one of the central points that I made in my article. It, even though the men might indeed deserve more show court placements, that's okay. You can at least make the show court placements three matches to two instead of four matches to one. And even if you do make the placement four matches to one, at least make the women's match right in the middle so that it's a, at a time of day when more television viewers and more fans can see it. The women's match has often been the first match on right in the middle of the workday, not even in like 
5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, after a number of people have gotten off work. If you have a normal 9 to 5 work day in Washington, D.C., and you can't get to that tennis facility until 5.30 p.m., you're not seeing women's tennis on the show courts. And similarly, if you're a fan watching on TV from home on Tennis Channel, you get home from work after a long day at 5 o'clock, 5.30, you're not seeing any women's tennis on television. So, Let me intervene there, Matt, for a second. I think you're hitting upon something very uh, important. I believe the WTA leadership has failed at many levels, especially as far as uh, uh, the TV streaming rights go. And the United States is one of those countries which has suffered in terms of women's tennis viewership. Uh, there are not enough streams outside of majors. And I don't know if that situation has been resolved. So I think that's one of the things that you may notice. That I believe Tennis Channel is focusing or has only partnership with the ATP matches. And the women's, I think, the tournament in, in San Jose, California, is part of the ESPN uh, coverage. So, But I definitely agree with what you have said. So let me uh, ask you uh, a question that has been the counter-argument with a lot of tennis fans, and that to inform tennis fans. A lot of people believe it's the economics that dictates play. The men, definitely, their tennis is placed higher in terms of demand, and that's why in tournaments where the the weightage of points is equal, men still get preference uh, on, on on show courts. So what do you have to say for that uh, that that model? If uh, first of all, do you believe that's the case? And secondly, even if that's the case, is it fair uh, to let uh, economics dictate this? Well, first of all. I have not, I have not researched a lot in terms of, you know, surveys or other very specific indicators of why fans buy tickets when they go to dual gender tournaments. You know, are they buying the ticket because they want to see the men's match or the women's match? I haven't really researched that a lot and I haven't come across articles which uh, try to seek more definition on those things, as long as the orders of play involve both men's and women's matches, that's something that's hard to sift through. What I can say is that the ratings, the television ratings in the United States for the women's and men's singles finals were not that far apart. Uh, now, I know that Serena Williams was in the women's final, and that probably improved ratings for that match. And I know that uh, neither Roger Federer nor Rafael Nadal were, were in the men's match. And also, it, the bigger reason for the low ratings there, and, and I hasten to note that Federer's 2017 men's final against Marin Cilic was also fairly low rated. Both of those matches, Federer Cilic in the 2017 Wimbledon men's final and Djokovic Kevin Anderson in the 2018 men's final, one player rolled through the first two sets in each of those matches. So when fans get the sense that a match is a blowout, they're not going to stick around, and it's going to hurt the overall ratings number. But nevertheless, on a broader level, uh, I do not see clear evidence that a lot more people are tuning in on television or are buying tickets to dual-gender tournaments strictly to watch the men relative to the women. I see a climate of balance, and I see a climate in which there's immense appetite for women's tennis and which has been doing really very well. And if we're, I think if we're going to look even further on this, one thing I can also say is that the crowd at Center Court Wimbledon for the Kevin Anderson-John Isner men's semifinal 
had several thousand empty seats at the start of the match and then also at a later point in the match. And I know that part of the reason is because people wanted to rest up for the Rafael Nadal-Novak Djokovic semifinal, which was the second semifinal on that ticket. But nevertheless, the appetite for that Isner-Anderson match was not very considerable. So I find the overall argument that uh, there's a greater appetite for men's tennis, I don't find it very convincing. Obviously, you will get a lot of people who will want to see Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic matches whenever two of the big three compete. Of course, there's a huge appetite for that. But beyond those three players, and beyond perhaps Andy Murray as well, I'm not seeing any notable differentiation in demand. There's one other point I want to make, Sokov, while we're on this larger subject, and that is that tennis tournaments have very consistently, for decades, scheduled such that women play their championship matches before the men do. I mean, that has been a long-standing practice across all four of the major tournaments, across the various Masters and Premier mandatory tournaments, you know, throughout throughout the tour for decades. That's the way it has been. What I propose and what also I think would change the nature of this, this discussion in a very healthy way is let's try not on an, an, an unyielding regular basis, but on a rotational basis like every other year, Let's play women's championship matches at big tournaments after the men. Let's make men the undercard, not the women. Now, I know that a lot of people got upset when the Novak Djokovic Rafael Nadal Wimbledon semifinal, which was resumed on Saturday after the curfew on Friday at that tournament a month ago, a lot of people got upset when that men's semifinal was played first, which meant that the uh, Serena Williams, Angelique Kerber, women's singles final was played after it, and more specifically, it was played at a time listed not before, meaning that the the start of the women's final was not fixed. It was contingent on when the men's match before it ended, and then the women's match was going to start 30 to 45 minutes later. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was not a fixed start time. So a lot of people got upset about that. But I want to raise this point. In boxing, in college basketball, in other sports where there are multiple competitions on the same day or night, uh, college basketball, a good example being the Final Four, where you have two national semifinals played on the same Saturday evening in the, in the, the host city for the Final Four. In those kinds of sports and in those kinds of situations, it is an honor. It is a privilege. You are viewed as having more box office clout and stature if you are that second semifinal. And when you are in that second semifinal or you are in the last, you know, let's turn to boxing. If you are in the last bout of the night on that card, that is the featured position. That is what confers featured status. So the, the set time when that competition begins is not known, but you have more status. It is, it is called saving the best for last. So while I understand and certainly empathize with the frustration a lot of women's tennis fans felt that Serena Kerber was not played at a fixed time, playing that after the men's semifinal conferred higher status upon that match. It's just not in a way that a lot of international fans are used to. I think that I, as an American, 
relate to and identify with that notion uh, more than a lot of uh, my European friends do. So that notion of an undercard first and then the main event after it, that's something which reflects well on women's tennis. And I think that if the Australian and U.S. Opens, since they both have roofed stadiums, uh, what if they played on the final Sunday of their tournaments, what if they played the men's title match first and then played the women's title match second? I think that would open up a lot of interesting debates, for one thing, but I think we might also view women's tennis in a very different light, and I think that might be a way to to make women's tennis feel, if not actually become, a lot more important. So, Sakib, I hope that addresses your question. If you have any follow-ups, um, feel free to ask. No, I think uh, this has been a good discussion so far, and uh, you've definitely uh, paved a, a new argument here, which uh, I'm not going to go against. I think it's a very interesting argument, and I would like to add a parting note uh, before we discuss uh, the men's side of the uh, Canadian Open or the, or the Toronto 1000 Masters. Uh, I think uh, to your point is uh, spot on, but for that to materialize, uh, I think uh, if the men were to play Saturday, then the men's tournament should start. Actually, both tournaments, uh, whoever's playing on Saturday, you're right, should start not on Monday, the Sunday. Because women are also being shortchanged. They start on Monday and they have to finish on Saturday. It's a 13-day turnaround. And for men, even though they play the best of five sets, I know that would be the counter-argument. They start on a Monday and they end on Sunday. So on that note... And, and uh, Sakib? Uh, yeah, and Sakib? One last note on that particular point. If the women played championship matches on Sunday instead of Saturday, that is exactly how and why one could initiate a reform in tennis in which women could play best of three sets in the first six rounds of a major tournament, but then could play best of five sets in the championship match. And that would also reduce a lot of the complaints that women should be paid less than men. Now, I think women should be paid as much as men regardless, but if you at least made the women's major tournament championship matches, the finals, that seventh match, best of five, you would take away a lot of the arguments against the notion that women should get equal pay. So this concludes our women's tennis segment at Tennis with an Accent. And we wish to recognize and appreciate our sponsors. I want to point out and I want to recognize Brad Pacheco, personal injury attorney. He has a voice that you can trust. And Sakib, I know that you also want to recognize one of our generous sponsors. Yeah, uh, uh, like in the same wavelength, I also want to uh, pay, you know, a long due thank you for our first sponsor, Dr. Premal Patel, who has a dentist practice in Gorham Street, Lowell. And uh, he's, you know, really so family practice where, you know, kids and same-day emergencies are treated with the utmost care. So, yeah, um, without these two sponsors, I think Tennis with Accent uh, wouldn't have been launched. So we are really grateful and uh, for the partnerships we have formed with these two sponsors. Hi, we have uh, Brody joining us from uh, Toronto, and uh, he is a known tennis voice on Twitter. And uh, he would be on site and also be covering the event for Tennis Panorama, uh, which is the Masters 1000 event in Toronto. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. Yes, yeah, that time of the year. You know, Canada has tennis presence, and uh, Matt and I just already unpacked uh, 
a good preview, at least we think we did, uh, for the women's event in Montreal. And now the men's show is in town in your city. And Novak Djokovic is again Wimbledon champion. He won the Toronto edition in 2016. So is he one of the big stories that you're looking forward to? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I have great memories uh, of him being here, I guess. I'm trying to remember when that was. Uh, it, he won in uh, 2014, I think. And um, he always seems to do uh, pretty well uh, here as well, too. Um, it, it's an interesting time, I guess, for the, the men's game, especially. Um, and it'll be an interesting tournament because there's not going to be uh, Federer at the tournament. But uh, obviously Djokovic coming back, you know, seeing him on hard courts. Uh, Andy Murray is expected to be there. He's playing this week, and of course Nadal, and you know just about everybody else. So uh, I think it'll it'll be really interesting to see how how he does. He's such had such a weird uh, year, Djokovic, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with Wimbledon going so well, and then you know for the last sort of year before that, uh, it's been kind of up and down, and um, you know struggles, and people sort of you know it's been difficult to really tell what exactly he's been going on with him specifically and obviously he's always been very good on hard courts uh and and to me i mean i i've been covering the the tournament for a long time um i find anyway one of the things that kind of goes uh under the radar a little bit with the toronto tournament is that it tends to be a little bit slow i think uh the the courts just play slow and we've had some years especially too where um it's been a little bit cold to me honest that night it kind of cools off a lot um, sometimes it can be a little bit chilly or a little bit windy, um, and I think he just kind of prefers that, to be honest. It, it doesn't play mm. super fast, and I find it, it tends to play a little bit slower than Montreal often as well, too, and I think he, he really enjoys that. So it, it should be interesting. It's a good, uh, and, good group it, of players. Interesting about the conditions, they've already. So uh, just stick with uh, Novak for you know, a couple more minutes, and you did mention it's no secret. You know, like uh, he's, uh, His comeback is in, in full swing now. You know, He was injured took the time off last year, and then uh, he had some unusual losses, but then he backed it up boy, by winning Wimbledon, you know, one of the biggest, or if not the biggest event. Uh, again, you know, the, he's a Hall of Famer, all-time, you know, great legend of the sport. Uh, uh, do, do you think there's still, uh, again, you know, we are sitting from the fence, uh, you think he's still uh, certainly removed from his best, and, it, and that's a scary sign for the rest of the field, because he's still, if he's still slightly below his best, and he wins Wimbledon in such a convincing manner. Uh, does that make him uh, an outright favorite right now? Because in, in tennis lately, you know, it's any given Sunday, you know, what you've done last week, and Djokovic definitely won the biggest round last time they all were at the party. Uh, is he the man to beat uh, for this hardcore swing for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think he could be. I think it would be, you know, fair to maybe expect that. I mean, obviously, uh, Nandal's playing very well. Uh, you know, I, I think it's definitely, for me anyway, personally, one of the, one of the more interesting and kind of intriguing things going into, uh, you know, the hardcore season because, you know, to a certain degree, men's tennis has become kind of predictable. Um, you know, obviously we have the big four and all those storylines and I think sometimes people get a little bit sick of that or, you know, we're used to hearing the same name certainly over the last, you know, 10 years or something. Um, but, you know, sometimes it gets a little bit messy, right? Uh, you know, Djokovic hasn't been quite himself. I don't think anybody's going to expect too much from Andy Murray, but you kind of have him coming back. Um, and so I, I think he's certainly one of the favorites. And I, I think the interesting thing would be as well, just kind of the, the mess of the seeding, right? We're so used to having uh, those guys in and around the top four, you know, the Zverev now, obviously, or Delpo and those kind of guys in and around there. But 
Um, we're used to seeing them play very deep in the tournament as well, too. And obviously Djokovic doesn't quite have his ranking up to that place. So we could have, you know, some weird, uh, you know, third round or, or quarterfinal, you know, shenanigans of Djokovic or Nadal or anything like that that draws them out yet. But, um, you know, it, it, it's tough to know. And I, and I think that will be, uh, really exciting for the tournament, too, because in years past, it, I will say, Quickly to Toronto, uh, you know, here we kind of get screwed uh, every uh, other men's tournament because it always lines up with the Olympics. So uh, in years mm-hmm. past, uh, the men's event just has been kind of a dud. I remember uh, the one at the same time as London, which I guess would have been 2012. Um, and there was guys who were flying back over from London. I remember like uh, Del Potro and Songa, and they were just losing immediately and they looked terrible. Uh, and so I think that might be exciting, especially if there's um, – you know, some sort of exciting, like, Thursday, Friday kind of night matches because uh, Montreal always seems to get the really exciting men's matches, and then Toronto, it just it, it usually never is lives up to the same sort of hype. So uh, I think especially for this tournament, that'll be exciting. And then, you know, I, I think, too, the, this tournament and the Cincinnati tournament, the, the players always take quite seriously, and, you know, they really do treat these as, as the warm-up events, and um, I, I always find that exciting. I think you can always take a lot uh, from what you see at those specific tournaments, especially uh, going into uh, the U.S. Open in terms of where guys are at. No, absolutely. I think you mentioned a couple of uh, you know underlying points in, in the season, and that's with Murray you know, also in the mix. And uh, as, as we record this, uh, we don't know uh, what the fate of Murray is by the time this conversation will be released. Uh, Murray has won a couple of, you know, uh, physical matches and signs are good that he's still in the tournament in Washington. And uh, again, uh, along with Wawrinka, Murray's another guy who will be on, on the, you know, on the, on the intrigue side of, of where they land in the draw. And uh, you're right, you know, Djokovic, Murray, or Djokovic, Wawrinka, or even Nadal or Del Potro playing one of these guys could be a marquee matchup uh, under the lights in, in Toronto. Uh, Sangha won in 2014, like you mentioned. Uh, he won't be there. Uh, who, who are some of the other names you think who could join this party? I know Sasha Zverev won the last edition in Canada in Montreal. Uh, obviously, Djokovic and Nadal are no strangers. Uh, they have won, you know, this event a few times uh, across both cities. Uh, who are some of the other names uh, that stand out as far as the stories go for the men's uh, Toronto edition? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think those are probably the main ones. I mean, I mean, it's funny just thinking, like, you know, of other sort of names. I mean, we've, we've had some weird things. I know uh, there was, uh, I think it was the, that, I, I can't remember my years. I think it was 2012 when Djokovic won. He played, like, Gasquet in the final. We've had, uh, you know, all sorts of just sometimes very weird kind of, like, semifinals, at least, uh, in the, the Toronto event. And, you know, Montreal has had some... Uh, some interesting uh, results too, and obviously with like the Canadians and and things like that. Um, I don't know. But personally, for me, I'd be curious to see uh, how Zverev does. Um, certainly on the hard court, and like I mentioned, maybe if it is playing a little bit slow, that probably you know plays into uh, how he would like to play. And um, I don't think I've actually even seen him play live, so I think that'll be that'll be really interesting. Obviously, the draw will play into it a little bit, yeah. but, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I think those are definitely uh, the big names, and, and for Nadal, too, as well, right? Uh, been playing quite well, and I, I think especially, um, you know, there's always things for him that, uh, in terms of kind of, you know, how his backhand is looking and, you know, how much just kind of uh, average depth he's getting on his shots, those things certainly, uh, I find, tend to go pretty quickly when he's not really doing so well, and he's been playing very well, uh, and those things have looked good, and, and those are the things that mm-hmm. he definitely needs to succeed on hard court, so that'll be uh, interesting to look forward to. 
And yeah, someone who may not make the trip across the border from U.S. It could be Nick Kyrgios, who uh, you know hasn't really fully recovered the season. He's had some niggle or the other. And I believe when you you know when you're not 100% and you can't train to the best of your abilities, these injuries kind of uh, either multiply or magnify. And that's the case now. He has a hip injury that he sustained in Atlanta, and uh, he had to pull out of Washington. Uh, not sure if he has already pulled out of uh, Toronto. And you know definitely. Uh, we'll you know keep track of uh, his presence, but uh, let's switch to Canadian tennis. Uh, I think uh, I followed the sport quite uh, you know quite for some time now, and uh, it's it's fair to say at the top of the game with the talent, uh, if we and, and the projected talent with uh, Shapovalov and Felix Auger, Aliasami, and uh, uh, perennial uh, contender Milos Raonic, it's fair to say the Canadian tennis at the in, in the men's side is uh, looking as bright as, uh, or even brighter than the American men. Uh, how's the, what's the media response to this, and how the fa- are the fans excited to have, uh, you know, some of these names coming up, give Roundage Company at the top? Yeah, I, I, it's uh, it's crazy just hearing you say that. I mean, yeah, I've, I've been probably, you know, a hardcore tennis fan for a long time, but even just being a kid, I remember, you know, uh, Canadian tennis was just not a thing when I was a kid. You know, the Sampras's and the Agassiz and the, those kind of names, you know, like you're saying American names and, uh, you know, imagining even having like a top 10 player or something like that it was just crazy. Uh, and now, you know, for sure, Raonic and we all know sort of him, his, uh, you know, limited abilities, but still being, you know, a very successful player. Um, and of course, Shapovalov, uh, you know, was the big sort of breakout star from a couple of years ago. He had a couple sort of crazy highlight reel shots and, uh, he's just sort of a, a fun, exciting kid, right? And he just, you know, runs around and hits the ball hard and, uh, likes to get the crowd into it and stuff. Uh, and Felix as well, too, who's still coming along and, and hopefully developing, but, uh, you know, it's shown really, really promising signs. Um, you know, tennis is a very interesting, uh, sport in Canada, I think, too, because, um, you know, a lot of sort of the cliches I think that people probably even in the United States uh, think about like Canada and hockey are, are completely true uh, and, you know, really sort of uh, shape the, the sports uh, calendar and, and things like that. So, I mean, probably not too much unlike uh, the United States where, you know, the summer is, is a bit of a lull and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say that in terms of the media landscape, it has changed a ton, but it definitely has been interesting um, that tennis does get a bit more airtime certainly now, uh, just in general, I would say, even then compared to 10 years ago where, uh, you know, you would have some coverage of the slams in terms of on like highlight shows, for example, you know, the sports centers and things of the world. Uh, now it, it certainly is more, uh, more common and the Canadian players, obviously we, we love Canadian anything in sports, uh, and so they always get lots of airtime, uh, and I'm sure they'll get tons of airtime and even just to have know two or three players and to to bring people to the stadium and stuff which sometimes is a little bit of a difficulty uh here in toronto too because the stadium is kind of in the middle of nowhere it's nowhere near the downtown core um is really really big for the tournaments really big for uh the sport here in general because it's it's not uh it's it's not a hugely popular sports uh here in canada i would say yeah so uh definitely gonna be exciting to watch uh let me ask you one more question on milos around it uh I know with the we just spoke about uh, the ascendance uh, of uh, Dennis Shapovalov and how you know what a shot maker he is and you know he's definitely an exciting character to watch and a lot of talent no denying there. Uh, how's his relation been with the with, with, with Tennis Canada like in terms of fans and media? And you think this helps him that there is another 
presence in the draw. Uh, uh, and and you know, where does Zaunis go from here? I mean, uh, he, he's also had a lot of injuries that he has to battle. And, you know, there's another guy along with Nishikori who's always hurt, not for the lack of trying, but they're just it's a big frame and, you know, sometimes he's carrying a niggle. So what does this do to his position in Canada tennis as Raisa Shapovalov? And what are the expectations of Raunik? What are, what are people saying? Do you still see him as a winner of these big tournaments? Uh, as a potential winner, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's sort of two interesting things here. I, um, you know, I, I think that was uh, what you just sort of mentioned, sort of like the media relations, and, and that was definitely one of the sort of interesting things when the Raunich started to become popular because, I mean, you know, men's tennis here was basically not a thing. I mean, you know, we have, like, Daniel Mester, you know, uh, and then, like, Frank Dantovich, right? And it was, like, nothing at all. And then when he started to become popular, um, and, you know, none of his fault. He's just not the most charismatic guy ever. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I don't mind watching him play, but I don't think certainly a lot of people necessarily find him the most entertaining uh, player to watch, and I can't blame them for that. And he's, he's done lots of things in order to try to grow the sport and stuff like that, but... You know, he's he's not the most exciting person to listen to talk, certainly. Uh, whereas, yeah, I mean, you, you make the comparison of Shapovalov, who's very just, you know, outgoing. And, you know, at the, at the same time, I don't think is too uh, too arrogant or anything like that. But, you know, he likes to have fun. And, he, and I think he, it, he's basically openly said, really, you know, he really wants to try to grow the sport uh, in the game, uh, the in the country, I should say. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's interesting also flipping to sort of the expectations where I think as Raonic, especially when he had that uh, huge Wimbledon run and, you know, was doing very well on grass and had some good hard courts, um, performances, you know, making, uh, making it far here, even in Canada once or twice. Um, but the injuries have definitely kind of derailed a little bit of momentum, I think, because, uh, you know, without just kind of having sort of these regular exciting updates, uh, you know, for people who are tennis fans, certainly, then you're going to be checking in. But for the, the other people who are just maybe general sports fans, you want to try to pull in. It's kind of killed that off a little bit. Um, and I, I think for Shapovalov, I think, you know, he's still very young. And so uh, that's fine. But I, I think especially if, you know, he could put together uh, like a big run at the U.S. Open or, you know, like a quarterfinal or even semifinal appearance at some sort of uh, slam or something, I think that would be, you know, really huge uh, just to for the general sort of sports fandom, right? And I think that's kind of the problem we always have in tennis. If you're if you're looking to grab more people to get them in and you're looking to those people who already like sports and who are looking for somebody to kind of cheer for. Um, and so I think if, you know, I say if, but hopefully when something like that happens, I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, the reaction because he's a very likable player and uh, the fact that he's kind of proudly Canadian and we always love to sort of hold on to that as well too uh, and that he's very passionate about trying to bring people in and, and he's great with kids and all those things which is, is really really fun so um, yeah fingers crossed that he has a good uh, a good week here in Toronto anyway Yeah I mean absolutely we can't hold it against a player if you know they are just not uh, not everybody's like as a much of a personality like John McIndoe or Marat Staffan or some of those guys. But, yeah, Rana does try, and he's a very sincere professional and uh, is not, you know, shy to try new things. Uh, so let me ask mm-hmm. you uh, something different. Uh, where does this uh, fall in the landscape of Toronto sports? How is this event promoted? I mean, do you see signs all over the city? I've attended the Montreal event twice. This is on my wish list, which just uh, hasn't happened yet because Toronto, I think, also has some of the best Indian food in North America. So it makes a, a must spot for me, but I haven't made the trip. 
But what's the publicity surrounding this event, and what's the TV coverage like? Uh, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, uh, please. Yeah, we have lots of great Indian food. My girlfriend is Indian, actually. So yes, uh, please come. We have lots of that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it, it is very interesting. I, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, if you've been to Montreal, I went to Montreal once actually, which was in, uh, I think 2010, uh, which was quite a while ago. Um, and, uh, I had only been to Toronto, uh, the Toronto tournament once in 2009. Uh, and then I've been there every single year just as media. Um, and it, it definitely is a different vibe. Uh, in Montreal, it's a little bit more of a European city too, uh, certainly. Uh, and I think they, they're into their tenants a little bit more. Uh, but it's easy to get to in Montreal, and it's been a great place, and it's actually in the old uh, stadium where the, the Expos used to play, basically, and they tore half of it out or whatever. It's a great venue. Uh, the, the venue here is great, too, uh, but it is far, far away. Uh, the you know the baseball stadium, the hockey arena, all of that stuff is right downtown Toronto. There's tons of stuff going on. Uh, the arena for tennis is so far away, uh, and uh, it's basically at the a university, which is just really nowhere. It's barely even Toronto. It's so far out. Um, one of the great things that I'm really curious to see, and this is going uh, a little bit deep, but there's actually um, – was basically past where the subway ended. So when I would even go there, uh, I would have to subway, and then you would have to get a bus from the subway just to get to the arena. Uh, and actually, just this year, they've extended the subway out by uh, three or four stops, and now there's actually a stop that is quite close uh, to the arena, which is great. So, uh, it, you know, it's still very far away, um, but especially if you're somebody who likes to take public transit, uh, you might be able to just grab, you know, basically one subway and just go all the way up, which makes it a lot more accessible for people. And they've actually included that sort of in the ads around the city. Um, and, you know, they they really struggle sometimes to pull people in. Uh, and they they did this really goofy thing a couple of years ago where they had the women's event and they had, like, the men come and play exhibitions. And there's just terrible, like, PR around that. And, uh, you know, they, they just really struggle sometimes. You can see, especially in the daytime, I mean, there's just nobody there. Um, and even at night sometimes. So uh, I, I am really curious to see, and I, I think you might even be able to tell from home, even just watching, uh, if there is a bit more there, and certainly having, you know, the big names, definitely having the Djokovic's and the Nadal's, and then also having Canadians there. So uh, I'm hoping for them, fingers crossed, that they have, you know, one of the best turnouts, because um, I think it's almost maybe even like the Cincinnati tournament. I know people say, like, look, it's not even really in Cincinnati. It's just, like, so far out. It's, like, in another town, basically. Um, this isn't in another town, but it almost feels like it might as well be because it's just it's so far out, um, even though it's, you know, been there for such a long time and has such a great history. And it is a great venue um, and for tennis. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah, uh, it, weather's looking pretty good, too, which always helps. It was definitely. Thanks, Brody. That was a very generous response, and uh, you covered even more than I asked for. You even gave us some sort of a view of someone who's trying to make a trip uh, to the tournament across, you know, and that, that, those are like some good guidelines. So once again, thanks mm-hmm. for joining us, and it was a pleasure speaking with you. No problem. Thanks for having me on.